0: Welcome to the Indy Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined today by two of our finest, Riley Snyder and Michelle Rindells. Hi, guys. Hey, John. Thanks for coming. So. It was a short week uh, because of the holiday, uh, uh, July 4th, where all the politicians go to the parades or uh, 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 don't, uh, as the case may be. Um, But one of the big things that happened this week is the first week of pot sales, Michelle. And it was a big week for the pot salesman, was it not?
1: It was a big week. Um, Specifically, you know, we were fortunate to... (laughs) Half of the state sales start on the first on time, really. Um, and of course, on a really huge weekend for Las Vegas. So, um, we don't know how much uh, was made in the uh, the first weekend, but the director of the Nevada Dispensary Association said that there were approximately three to five million dollars in sales that were done. Uh, over the weekend. So the state still has to maintain a really pretty high level of sales uh, over the next two years to really meet these projections. Um, What are the projections? Let people know. Governor Sandoval has projected about $64 million of revenue from Just this one tax, which is the excise tax, it's a 10% tax on recreational marijuana. Now, that's in addition to all normal sales tax that's on marijuana of recreational and medical use, and a 15% wholesale tax. So you've got tax upon tax upon tax, and then the local governments can also charge their their dispensaries a a licensing fee that's up to 3% of the gross revenue. So dispensaries are pretty heavily taxed. Um, they're expecting $64 million over two years out of this um, excise tax. And that amounts to about $800,000 in sales every day for the next two years. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? It could be a lot. I think it. Uh, talking to Senator Tick Sager-Bloom, it seems that uh, you know a lot of it will depend on how quickly we can get tourists into this market. Uh, and of course, the problem is you can't consume this in public. So either you got to be breaking the law to consume it or you've got to consume it in a private home. And tourists obviously are not usually in private homes. So uh, so there's this conundrum here. Senator Bloom is actually seeking a legal opinion. Um, the legislature did not pass a bill that would have allowed marijuana lounges. Uh, but he is seeking a legal opinion saying does does local or does existing law allow local governments to create these rules that would allow for marijuana social clubs and lounges that tourists could go to and kind of boost that. Uh uh, business from the tourists yeah
0: only in Nevada could you have a legislator asking for an opinion that essentially says can we get around the thing that we didn't do as a state government so the local governments can do it one other thing you alluded to is that it did actually start on July 1st and you mentioned that there was some question about it by the by the way you should if you're listening you should and you haven't seen it, you should go on the Nevada independent site we had our own Jackie Valley uh, follow-around people in a kind of a celebratory mood on, on, at midnight when it started including Tech Sigerbloom who I think was the first uh, uh, customer in Nevada. But this almost did get held up, and there's still a legal
1: question that's pending, right, Michelle? There's still the legal battle going on with the liquor distributors. Um, So what happened is uh, liquor distributors in the the ballot question that passed have a special exclusive right to the first 18 months of distribution, which is just moving marijuana from a cultivation facility to a retail store, for example. So it's this transportation um, element. Now, they they wanted to claim that, but the state taxation department was saying there's not enough of you. You guys can't be ready in time, so we're going to say let's let everybody apply to this license. A judge actually ruled against that, um, saying that liquor distributors do indeed— Um, they're the only ones that can get these distribution licenses. Uh, so that's been a potential holdup. Um, now these marijuana dispensaries have been stocking up on 30 to 60 days worth of product. So they're not going to necessarily need someone to drive product from one place to another. Um, immediately, uh, it could become a problem in a couple months, but we're expecting that the liquor distributors will start getting their licenses soon in a matter of days. If not, maybe it even happened while we're speaking. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so this could potentially be a problem down the road. This, there, there's an appeal going on at the Nevada Supreme Court where the state is trying to see if marijuana businesses can indeed get in on the distribution business. And then they would be just transporting their own product from their own, you know, say you got a verti- vertically integrated company that's got a cultivation facility where plants are. And then you turn it into marijuana oil. And then you got a store all owned by the same person. And then the distributors A member of your company as well, so it would be completely a vertically integrated model.
0: Seems like it'd be a good business for a nonprofit to get into, don't you think, Riley? (laughs) To phrase some of the bills,
2: Michelle has learned a lot about marijuana. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. One thing maybe you can explain, Michelle, is for people who aren't marijuana enthusiasts and listen to the podcast, what stake do liquor distributors have in the whole marijuana game?
1: Um, Well, they, you know, you needed them um, on board. To get the ballot measure passed, and this was they didn't something- want them to
0: oppose it the, 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 that was the fear. and so they mm-hmm. essentially made a deal with them so the liquor distributors would not oppose their ballot question to legalize marijuana.
1: yeah, so obviously the liquor industry liquors everywhere here. It's a huge, powerful industry. You don't want to pit the two together if you want to get the marijuana question passed. So the um, they kind of, you know, Built this uh, partnership and and the liquor distributors gave uh, something like $88,000 to the campaign uh, during the early phases and it indeed passed and they were kind of in a friendship mode and now – it's a little more adversarial because yeah. marijuana Thanks to. for
0: your help. See you later, right? That's essentially what happened. Riley, what's your professional opinion on whether we'll see a change in the demeanor of State Senator Segerblum now that the marijuana has passed?
2: I think we're all going to realize that his demeanor won't change at all.
0: <laughs> and what does... Never mind. Uh, but I'm going to use the State Senator Segerblum as a transition. He, he is uh, uh, talking about running for the Clark County Commission and you had the great pleasure this week, uh, Riley, of keeping an eye on the Clark County Commission. We should let our podcast listeners know that we're going to be covering all kinds of government entities now that the legislature is over, state, local, uh, and, and of course, the Clark County Commission, the most powerful local government body. Was that the best time you've had in your life so far, Riley?
2: Easily. (laughs) Top 10 highlight, John. Um, So, yeah, I watched the Clark County Commission on Wednesday, and one of the items that came up and was brought up for a discussion for about an hour was this question over the future of the Constable of North Las Vegas, Robert Elizan. Um, he was a former city council member for North Las Vegas for 12 years, ran for constable. He has no prior law enforcement experience. One, the problem is, is that he has a abdominal injury and a neurological disorder that prevents him from doing sit-ups. And to be a constable in highly populated jurisdictions in Nevada, you need to be able to pass post-training, which is the training that all police officers have to go through. So he can't pass it. He's not licensed as a police officer. And as the RJ's Michael Davidson has reported out he carries a gun with him. Sometimes he goes out in the field, even though he's not technically trained and hasn't received the certification. So technically, uh, he's breaking the law. He shouldn't be in office. The law is kind of vague as to what should happen with him. And so commissioners kind of decided to kick the decision out for two more weeks to try and figure out a legal pathway forward. Um, From what they said, they all like him. Two of the commissioners actually endorsed him when he ran for Constable in 2014. Um, But yeah, it's an interesting question of how laws are written you know who has the power to make him vacate the office when it said he should have been out a year ago when no one is sort of forced him to do that.
0: So a guy with no law enforcement background runs and becomes a constable and can carry a gun but can't do sit-ups and shouldn't be in office. Is that the distillation of that story, Riley?
2: Basically, it's a distillation. <laughs> uh,
0: I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is and you mentioned Michael Davidson and he did a, uh, at the RJ and we should give him credit. He did a lot of great reporting on this, including during the session. There was actually a bill that was specifically targeted to, to, to exempt uh, uh, him from the, the requirement so he could keep his job, right?
2: There was a bill, unfortunately, because the legislature, website has been down since the 4th of July. <laughs> um, I have been able to go back and check the legislative history, but it, the, at least the initial version would have exempted, exempted him from it. And what was interesting during the commission meeting was that Marilyn Kirkpatrick, a current county commissioner um, and former assembly speaker, passed the bill in 2013. So the requirement was in place when he first ran for office. You should have known about it. She said it was sort of, um, it, it was. she took the blame for it. She said, if, anyone wants to, if the paper wants to blame anyone, blame me. It got changed in the Senate and I didn't pay attention to it. Um, she said it really wasn't the legislative intent and I think what the commission was hoping for, this is the sense I got, was that they would be able to change it during the session. They wouldn't have to take action on it because that bill died. I think it was SB 250. It was a bill Senator Mo Dennis brought forward. Um, you know, Now they have to deal with it. And so we'll see what happens at the next commission meeting.
0: I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is what are they, they going to do in this two-week interim? I mean, you use the word technically, but the guy essentially shouldn't have the job. He doesn't have the proper requirements for the job. Is he going to get his post-certification in the next two weeks? Is he practicing sit-ups as we speak here doing this podcast, Riley? What's what's going on? Uh,
2: um, Robert Eliasson <laughs> is engaged in an intensive physical therapy <laughs> regimen to try and do 29 sit-ups yeah. in 60 seconds. Um, but what he is doing is in... State law, you get a year to get your post certification if you are a constable, and then you can apply for a six-month waiver. He did all that. So that time ran out um, in June of last year. So what he's doing now, and this was the kind of the new development out of uh, Wednesday's meeting, is that he has like a second um, American with Disabilities Act waiver request in to both the post board and to the county commission. I don't know why it's going into the county commission, because I don't think they can grant that waiver if he wants it. So he's he has an attorney who's just trying all the different legal options, just throwing things out. But the county's uh, we, uh, main attorney basically said, like, we've been talking about this for a year and there's no way it's going to change in the next two weeks.
0: And so uh, they all like him. You mentioned two of them uh, endorsed him. But there doesn't seem any legal pathway for him to keep this job, does there?
2: They're going to try and find one and we'll find <laughs> out if they can in the next two weeks. But, yeah, the law, I think it comes down to, for me, why I was interested in the story was that it goes to the fact that you have legislators who write these laws. They get passed in, like, the span of 48 hours. And, you know, sometimes they're not the best written. Like, there's a lot of leeway. There's, like, no one who's charged with removing him from office if he doesn't do it. It just says the office shall be vacated if these conditions aren't met. But if he stays there and goes to work every day, you know, who's supposed to do that? Um, And so maybe it was something the legislature should have brought up in 2017. I'm sure it will come up in 2019. Um, But, yeah, that's – interesting how it all kind of is playing out.
0: I should mention to to our listeners that another reason the county commission is so interesting and it will be a great beat to cover is you have at least one of uh, those county commissioners who's running for governor already, Steve Sislack. And you have another one, Christian Kiliani, who is seriously thinking about getting into a primary against her colleague. Did you notice at all any dynamics going on there, Riley, in your first look? One of these meetings, did they perform differently? Were they pontificating? Were they trying to get your attention in any way?
2: Um, as much as I like to think elected officials are thinking about me at all times, <laughs> I don't think they were during this meeting in particular. Um, for the most part, I think Sisalak sort of has his own personality where he asks a lot of questions. He was the only no vote to delay it for two weeks. My sense was uh, June Kiliani wanted to keep him on as long as possible. She had a lot of concerns about ADA requirements, but in terms of their interactions with each other, I think it was pretty respectful. Uh, Ms. June Kiliani said that she uh, if she did get in the primary, it would not be against would because she thinks she's the best person for the job. So I think she's sort of trying to tread that lightly if that is you know, kind of the precursor to a primary.
0: I'm not running against you, even though I'd be in the same race for the same office that you want and we'd be on the ballot together, that kind of thing. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the the really big political news of the week that that, that we had first. Our colleague, uh, Megan Messerly, uh, uh, broke the news that Jackie Rosen uh, is officially in, in the U.S. Senate race. Uh, and, and she also got the news that Jackie Rosen essentially just acknowledged that Harry Reid called her to get her in. And then what happened after that is even uh, 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 more interesting in a sense. The same choreography that the Reed... The machine is used through the years. Suddenly, they had everybody coming out to uh, endorse her. Catherine Cortez Masto, Ruben Kewin, uh, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, Emily's Emily's List. Uh, For some reason, and maybe one of you guys can explain this to me because I'm new to this whole political beat, is Dina Titus did not endorse Jackie Rosen.
1: Why did that not happen, guys? Well, uh, as you have documented, there's a history of Senator (laughs) Reid. Um, kind of choosing other people over Dina Titus, um, including the county commission race. I believe it was 2002 when uh, when Reed's son ran for that position, and uh, and then uh, and, you know endorsing in the governor's race another person in the Democratic primary, um, and then uh, you know just not. Helping her in other parts of the process. So uh, it's kind of been a long standing um, thing. And and as you pointed out, um, it was interesting the candor that she had towards Senator Reid in, in an interview that Ray Hagar did on Nevada Newsmakers with her. That's Dina Titus you're talking about now, yeah. Mm-hmm. In,
0: in which she said, <laughs> Lots of nasty yeah. stuff. Uh, uh, and, and, and I mean, it came across that way. Uh, it, it's the only it, only Dina Titus could make calling somebody a nice lady seem snide, which is how she mm-hmm. referred to Jackie Rosen. And then I think Jackie Rosen told Megan, uh, "Well, it's her career. Meaning, Dina Titus, that she has to decide uh, where, where, she, where she wants to go. Well, that's going to be a very fun race. Let's let's tell people since we're doing this uh, on, on on Friday." Uh, Michelle, you went to a news conference uh, this morning. The Katherine Cortez Masto had, and you asked her uh, an interesting question, and she had an even more interesting answer. I thought.
1: Yeah, I asked her if she had talked to Dina Titus before making this decision to endorse. You know, Jackie Rosen. They're they're both you know Congresswomen. Um, but of course, Dina Titus has been in the realm for much longer, um, and Jackie Rosen has only been in that office for six weeks or six months. Um, Catherine Cortez Massa said she didn't tell Dina about this, um, but said, "You know, I believe Jackie is the right person for the job and the kind of person I would support. And you know, I'm I'm all in for for Jackie Rosen. So, it was interesting. There wasn't a prior." Uh, notification there. It's also interesting
0: to me that apparently Harry Reid sitting in his office uh, at the Bellagio now uh, still can uh, wield uh, some influence. Uh, So uh, uh, also this week, and maybe both of you can talk about this. I know, Michelle, you covered uh, the board of examiners since you are really a glutton for punishment. (laughs) And there was news on Yucca Mountain, right? News. News perhaps.
1: Well, another, uh, you know, there was another contract that the state has with with this team that's trying to help develop the case against Yucca Mountain. So the state has been for really decades um, building a case against Yucca Mountain should this project be restarted, and they need to go before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and fight it. So, um, I mean, they're building literally hundreds of, quote unquote, objections. And these are, you know, I guess, research on, on various reasons why yuccas yeah, is not a good idea. They renewed one of these contracts. That's pretty routine. We've seen that a couple times in Board of Examiners meetings. Um, but it was also a chance for the governor, and the, the Board of Examiners is made up of the governor, uh, the attorney general, and the secretary of state. So it was a chance for them to kind of talk through some of these latest developments, um, including the incident in which... You know, Energy Secretary Rick Perry proposed having Nevada be a site for interim nuclear storage and also just expanding the amount of nuclear waste that Nevada would be taking. Um, so the expert, this contractor who's worked on this project since 1998, um, said this would, would just be, you know, a lot more dangerous uh, to accommodate all this extra waste. They, they discussed that, you know, Secretary Perry has sort of walked back this suggestion that Nevada is going to get... Um, all this nuclear waste and interim (laughs) nuclear storage. Um, I found it interesting because, of course... Rick Perry and the governor are, are sort of friends, but this um, with has been a wedge like that. between them. Yeah, with mm-hmm. friends
0: like that, right? One thing you mentioned is kind of interesting is this board of examiners, and you mentioned that it's these three constitutional officers are on and I bet most people listening to this podcast have never heard of it, but they have a lot of power because basically what they do, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, is they, they approve very, very uh, big contracts very often, right? That's what their responsibility is. They're giving out state money.
1: Yeah, they have some huge contracts. In fact, I think it was in December, I went to one of these meetings, and I believe it was about $28 billion in Medicaid. I mean, they were approving this pass through money. Um, So they have huge um, authority to kind of, you know, look through these contracts and, and give the yes or no and, and the governor's asking questions about all these random contracts. So uh, yeah, a lot of authority there in that board of examiners. And
0: we will be covering uh, the board of examiners because Michelle loves to dig mm-hmm. into in, into contracts. You, know, you mentioned uh, something in passing, Riley, that I think well, a lot of people listening don't know about it. has been a real problem for for reporters and lobbyists, which is that this fire that's been raging up, up, up north has caused a legislative website, which, by the way, I think is one of the best legislative websites in the country. You can't get on it.
2: Yeah, so shout out to Rick Combs for the, the legislative website. But it has been down since the 4th of July. I was on the legislative website on the 4th of July. Um, so I, I called on, I think, Thursday. I think the RJ did a follow-up story today that it's an issue with AT&T and some of their cables or wiring up in northern Nevada. They have no timetable for it to be returned. So it's the legislators' emails. It's the um, you know the entire system in which you track bills to see like what the votes were, or what the text is. We have our own, you know, version of a bill tracker that we worked on throughout the sessions so that's still up, but... That's a second-hand source. It's not a primary source. <laughs>
0: According to Dylan Shaver, a, a lobbyist, yes. Yeah. Uh, I consider it a primary source, just so you know, Riley.
2: Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's made it a little bit difficult to go back and look at um, some of the legislative history things. But, yeah, it's just, you know, it's one of those times where I've been glad we have a part-time legislature because if this happened during the session, I don't know what would happen.
0: Well, you, me- you mentioned uh, uh, the legislature and, and, and the website. One of the things you've been working on and people can look forward to reading uh, in, in a few days is one of our fact checks. We're doing we're doing fact checks. I'm not going to tell people what, what the actual uh, uh, fact check rating is going to be, uh, but uh, talk about what you've been what you what you've been working on because we're going to check all kinds of different things. But it's 2017, and yet already there's a 2018 campaign ad, essentially, or attack that you're checking on.
2: Yeah, and so it's for a candidate who hasn't even announced yet, which is (laughs) even more fun. It's the uh, Republican Attorneys General Association put together this website that goes after Aaron Ford, who was the state Senate majority leader last session. And it's like Carson City has a buzz with rumors he's going to run for attorney general (laughs) and have, like, all these little pixel art things, and it goes over a couple of things, including, you know, the, the whole issue with Senator Mark Menendo and the allegations of sexual harassment. It goes over um, his support for uh, voting restoration for ex-felons, and then it also goes over um, the Sanctuary City bill that our colleague Megan Messerly detailed um, throughout its entire life, the bill that never got a hearing, but somehow we voted for mm-hmm. it, according to the website. Um, so, yeah, that will be coming out sometime this weekend.
1: What else do we have coming out this weekend, Michelle? going to have some coverage of, of, Medicaid, um, including, uh, of course, I was at this. I was actually in a hospital for this press conference, deep in the bowels of UMC, where Catherine Cortez Masto was standing next to a hospital bed and and touting her opposition to the Senate Obamacare repeal and repa- replace bill.
0: Medicaid was emphasized here. There was there was someone who was a recipient of Medicaid, I, I understand. Mm-hmm. And and so the point of this and there's all these press events that have been going on all week by these people who are opposed to 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 the uh, repeal. And and she she decided to call a press conference and focus on Medicaid today.
1: Well, they wanted to highlight the impact of of a potential Medicaid you know rollback. Uh, so there was a report that was released, kind of showing Nevada specific data on this. You can expect a, a lot on this in our colleague Mayle- Megan Messerly's story on this coming on Sunday, and also just uh, from me, you know, the implications uh, for. Cortez Masto and her stance on this this bill. Obviously, she's very much opposed to it. Um, and it's also interesting to, uh, through the reporting we've done this week, see the stories of people who are getting Medicaid, just people that are really on the edge for whatever reason. Uh, maybe they're pregnant or... Um, just working part-time or in the case of this woman that we met today, um, you know, just a lot of chronic conditions and a lot of disabilities. So it's interesting to to meet these folks that would be um, affected by a cap in Medicaid expenditures, a per person cap um, and and just uh, when you, if you lower the eligibility, uh, so you'll, be able to see some of that in the two stories that are coming out this weekend. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have one
0: uh, story that you're doing on, on that press conference. And as you mentioned, Megan, Megan Messerle is doing a really deep dive into the whole issue of Medicaid funding, which uh, uh, people should know, Governor Brian Sandoval was the first Republican governor uh, to, to, to expand Medicaid. It's taken us from, I think, close to 50th in the nation and uninsured to about 24th, 25th uh, or something. And now Dean Heller, uh, 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 is touting those same numbers. He's been against Medicaid spending in the past. Riley, can you tell our listeners where Dean Heller spent his holiday?
2: Dean Heller was in Ely, Nevada. Ely has a population of about 8 Thousand,
0: yep, that's uh, right.
2: If I'm wrong, there's going to be a really angry I'm email sure that's right. from Yuli yeah. in my inbox after this <laughs> podcast gets released. Um, he went out to Fallon, he went out to Lovelock and Winnemucca. He stayed in rural parts of the state. Baker
0: too, don't forget Baker, oh. population 68.
2: I'm going to get more angry <laughs> emails. Um, so yeah, he put out a little video on Twitter saying where he went. Um, he had volunteers throughout the state at all these Fourth of July parades, and they tried to just you know beat their chest and say Team Dean is here. Um, I think he tweeted at the New York Times and CNN to thank them for coming all the way out to Ely. Um, So he was as far away from populated areas of Nevada, I think, as you could possibly be.
0: Well, why don't we do a shout out to somebody who is also going to be in some of these rural areas and who is also running uh, for the U.S. Senate and who I know you express some interest. I know I'm revealing internal uh, Nevada indie secrets here. You expressed some interest in going along on a rural tour with another U.S. Senate candidate. Did you not? Yeah, Riley? Jesse
2: Sabae is on a uh, 10-day uh, <laughs> tour of rural Nevada making stops in like Minden and Gardnerville. <laughs> but I will remind you, John, that Megan did volunteer to cover the Democratic <laughs> Senate <laughs> <laughs> primary. So – I think she has first dibs on that. She does.
0: She does indeed. This is the resist and insist tour or something like that. He's calling it. I I I believe. Uh, And we should mention that that uh, Senate race, which we're going to cover on both sides uh, in depth. There could be primaries on both sides. Danny Tarkanian is thinking about running against uh, Dean Dean Heller. Who knows uh, what else is going to happen? I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are thinking, uh, probably correctly. What are these people doing talking about 2018 races on July 7th of 2017? But they start earlier than ever. Riley doing the the the, the fact check. Every decision that's made when, when Attorney General Laxalt votes on a contract and the Board of Examiners that could become an an issue, right? It's interesting on Yucca Mountain, which is an issue that's been used against Republicans in the past. Laxalt has been very strong on being opposed to Yucca Mountain, right? And he was for that contract,
1: correct? Yeah, he's um, you know definitely an opponent of Yucca, even though you know some of the folks in say Nye County and such, and um, folks that are the Republican Republican strongholds are really wanting that uh, that waste to come to Nevada to, as a way to do some economic development out there. So,
2: oh, this is a, a fun aside, John. I don't know if you knew this, but um, I, because I have so much free time in my life, I watched a 360 Daily interview with Danny Tarkanian, Rob Lauer's show, and Danny Tarkanian is pro Yucca Mountain. He wants us to reprocess spent nuclear waste fuel out there. So it's interesting that like he's the kind of like you know maybe that that'll play into it if Nye County wants you know, a a facility out there if the rural[s] are kind of okay with it. That's a it's different from what we've seen for most of, you know, political people in Nevada.
1: But I don't know if Laxall has much of a choice. His office is so ingrained in this fight against Yonka. Obviously, they're they're the primary lawyer for the state and have to um, spearhead this fight. So a lot of the contracts that um, are approved are actually attorney general contracts uh, for for the defense of Yucca, it's
0: an interesting position for Danny Tarkanian to take. because while I do think there are a lot of people in this state who rightly think you know we're never going to be able to stop this thing, especially now Trump put it in his budget, uh, it's going to get through a Republican Congress. It's kind of a bipartisan issue in some ways. Unless you're from Nevada, uh, you're for it. Uh, but I have to tell you, Riley, this just confirms my faith in in having you as part of the NVND staff because you are the only person in the world I know who would be watching a Newsmax show and actually get news out of it.
2: Yeah, uh, well, Michelle's cat woke me up at 5 a.m., so.
0: <laughs> See, you're getting, you're learning all kinds of of, 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 of indie secrets here mm-hmm. on the Indie Matters podcast. Michelle and Riley, thanks for being here today. That's, that's all the time we have for, for this edition of Indie Matters. We want to know uh, what you think out there. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindie.com. That's ideas at com. Check out the site if you haven't already. I'm sure you have, the thenevadaindependent.com, and go on iTunes and subscribe you can also rate us there you can find us on Google Play and all kinds of other places I want to thank the great folks uh, here at KUNV and the campus of UNLV uh, for for helping put this together and as always our fantastic producer Joey Lovato who will put together the KUNV handiwork and make us all sound like we have radio voices. I'm John Ralston thanks for listening everybody Indie Matters and we'll talk to you next week
2: I saw a, a, an ad for television that was being sold for one dollar, and they couldn't turn the the volume down at all. It was stuck on the loudest. I thought, I can't turn that down. <laughs>